Welcome to No More Risk Better, a Credit Sites podcast. I'm Winnie Caesar, the Global Head of Strategy. And I'm Zach Griffiths, the Credit Sites Senior Investment Grade Strategist. As strategists, we aim to make sense of the macro and the micro, highlighting opportunities and the risks facing the fixed income markets. As important as the macro call may be, we understand that credit investing at its core comes down to keen single name selection, and we at Credit Sites benefit from the expertise of our team of over 100 analysts across the US, Europe, and Asia. This podcast offers a look at the conversations that we have with our analysts on a regular basis. If you are an investment professional focused on the wide universe of fixed income, you'll want to give this podcast a listen. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Credit Sites podcast. My name is Winnie Caesar. I'm the Global Head of Strategy here at Credit Sites. And today we're going to talk European autos with our senior Euro auto analyst, Jim Williamson. Thank you so much, Jim, for being with me today. Yeah, no worries. Thanks for having me on. Looking forward to it. Me too. I love talking autos. I used to never be a car person, but then I had to buy one last year at the height of all the shortages. And it's actually a very fascinating industry. So I'm excited to learn from you. So let's dive right into our icebreaker question, which is if you could have a sneak peek at any piece of economic credit market or sector specific data for the rest of the year, or even 2024 at this point, what would it be and why? Yeah, so I mean, that's a great question for autos. I think for me, we're looking pretty closely at the Mannheim used car index, which attracts the used car prices in the US. And it'd be very interesting to see where that shakes out through the rest of this year and also through 2024. I think if you look back 2020 and you can see the, the sharp rise in used car prices through 2021, it coincided pretty much one-to-one with how favorable the environment's been for new car pricing as well. And it's been one of the most favorable kind of environments in general that we've perhaps ever seen for automakers. So, you know, obviously that was in a large part due to the, the supply chain shortages that you mentioned due to the semiconductor crisis, but as component availability improves and if we continue to see sort of economic activity slow, I think that the Mannheim Index is going to give you a pretty good proxy for how sticky that the pricing environment is for those automakers going forward. I think if you saw that index collapse, I think it would perhaps be a bit of an ominous sign for how sustainable the kind of Goldilocks environment that automakers have had for nearly three years now, how good that's going to be. That's a a great one. And it's interesting because autos is typically viewed as one of the very cyclical sectors. If things are going to slow down, autos are also going to slow down. But I think that there's been a little bit of a different narrative emerging, given that there were so many supply chain and production shortages. How are you thinking about all of that within the context of your sector recommendation? What is your current rec on Euro autos and why are you positioned that way? I think you raise a really interesting point in the sense that autos is normally very cyclical and tends to be one of the first kind of shoes to drop. But this is very different in terms of where the auto sector is in the cycle. And so, you know, they've kind of been through a lot of the pain that would normally be associated with an economic slowdown for completely unrelated reasons. But in terms of our current sector recommendations, so for investment grade autos, we currently have an underperform recommendation, which we moved to from a market reform earlier this year. And I'd say that that's primarily on valuation grounds. It's not really a secret that the sector's had a lot of tailwinds over the last couple of years. And so you've seen profitability, free cash flow generation, 
reach levels really that people probably didn't even think was possible, you know, even back just a couple of years ago. I don't think that those dynamics have been lost on investors for sure. And you can see when you look at sector spreads that they've tightened pretty aggressively, you know, over the last 18 months or so, even through 2022, when we had the big sell-off. And, you know, that is somewhat counterintuitive given, as you mentioned, autos is very cyclically exposed, but overall, I would say relatively comfortable in the sector fundamentals. But um, I think that from a pricing perspective, it's very much priced for a continuation of the Goldilocks environment that we've had over the last couple of years. Um, on the high yield side, I would say, I think there's a, it's a lot more interesting, but I think more important than ever that investors look to pick their spots somewhat. And I think in a cyclical sector, you're going to start to see a lot more kind of bifurcation between winners and losers over the next couple of years than, you know, what we saw through that really ultra low rates era. So, you know, in that vein, we're kind of looking at compelling idiosyncratic opportunities to avoid companies that may struggle with unsustainable capital structures, for example, and, and try and focus on areas like potential rising stars, you know, where we have names like Farisia in our sector or strong turnaround stories with the likes of like a Jaguar Land Rover where you can really pick up some decent compensation, I think. Love to hear that there are rising star opportunities. That's always something that investors get excited about. I would be curious, we're now through the first quarter earnings season, almost halfway through the year. I don't know how we've gotten there. How would you characterize kind of commentary from management teams at Q1 earnings? Is it constructive that they think that this Goldilocks is going to continue or, or are people kind of positioning for some deceleration in momentum? I would actually say we're starting to hear for the first time a little bit of uh, divergence between what we're hearing from management teams, especially from the OEMs. We hear from a couple of the more premium guys, like uh, I think BMW mentioned that their order book in uh, Europe was starting to slow down. I mean, I think it needs to be taken in the context that order books are still extremely long because we've had such a long period of time where you know, supply was so constrained. But in terms of the cadence of new orders that are you know, replacing those other orders as they start to re-ramp production up again, hearing a bit of uh, divergence. So we've got some companies that are kind of expecting volumes to be broadly flat this year at one end of the spectrum. And then you've got a name like VW who's gone the complete other way. And they're saying they're going to grow 15% um, year over year this year, which would be more than double what is expected for the overall market. So I think it's as well a little bit about the last, few years in autos has been very much about this value over volume approach. And so the idea of chasing volumes hasn't been as pronounced as it probably used to be where everyone used to try and chase economies of scale and, and chase market share. And so there's a little bit of divergence on that front as well, where, you know, a name like VW is still talking about trying to take market share and have market share targets where some of the other guys don't seem as phased about, you know, losing potentially some market share, but really zeroing in on the profitability and free cash flow generation and, and building the brand and, and kind of pushing into more premium side of things. That's really interesting. Idiosyncratic was one of my top words for 2023. And it seems like the Euro auto sector is, is not escaping from having some of those idiosyncratic kind of business decisions and just um, operating environment considerations. 
So let's talk a little bit about issuance. You mentioned on the high yield side, kind of sustainability of capital structures is one thing to be aware of, especially in this higher rate environment. What's your outlook for the primary market in the auto sector in the second half of the year? Yeah, so European auto is actually very interesting from an issuance standpoint, especially in investment grade. So a lot of the big OEMs, you know, the likes of BMW, VW, Mercedes, they all operate very large wholly owned capital financing operations. And so a large portion of the capital that they use to fund those tends to be raised via the bond market. And so as a result, you know, in a, in a more normalized financing environment, the kind of cadence of primary issuance tends to be relatively consistent so that they can kind of keep that funding base quite steady. Obviously, with all the volatility that we had last year, there was a definite decrease in, in how much uh, new paper they were able to issue. For a little bit of context, I think in 2020, there was roughly 25 billion. 2021, there was about 21 billion. And, and last year, there was only 17 billion. So there was definitely uh, a bit of a slowdown. Where did they get the financing from, I guess, is the question last year. And basically what happened is because the manufacturing side of the business was you know, absolutely printing cash because they were doing so well, a lot of the automakers were able to somewhat self-fund the captive side via kind of intercompany loans. So, you know, the manufacturing side would bring cash to the captive to help them bridge the gap until financing conditions improved. You know, that's not really an ideal long-term solution. And so, you know, as financing conditions have stabilized for this year, we've seen a flood of primary issuance. You know, we've seen more than uh, 19 billion of issuance this year for the auto sector. So we're already above 2022 levels. And that was kind of another part of the rationale for our underperform recommendation. From a technical perspective, there's, you know, there has been a lot of new paper coming. We expect that there'll probably be some more in the pipeline because as those, as they continue to try and refinance those uh, loans that were given by the manufacturing side, that's a lot of new debt to be absorbed. And I think we've, you know, already kind of started to see some signs of the impact of that. You know, when BMW recently came with a deal, you know, about a month ago, the kind of the most recent one to issue. You know, the, the order books were not quite as well covered as some of the deals that we saw earlier in the year, you know, so that it might indicate a little bit of a waning appetite or perhaps funds reaching allocation limits and things like that. So that's kind of another aspect of you know, the overhang that might have on a secondary through the second half of the year, I think. Yeah, that's interesting. I think that in 2022, everyone was surprised by kind of how well new issue was received, especially in the U.S., where activity was very robust. It was a little bit less robust on the euro side of things, but we've had a surprisingly strong start to the year in the European markets, especially given our expectation for spreads to kind of end the year on a sideways to slightly wider basis. And I think the second half of the year is really where you could start to see the technicals get a little bit more challenged, especially as the ECB needs to continue to hike rates. Their QT programs are kind of continuing to make their way through the system when, you know, we all know that the ECB has been really involved in the investment grade primary market in the euro index. So a lot of moving pieces for the sector in the back half of the year. And on that note, what keeps you up at night? You know, if we are underperform, underweight autos on the Euro side of things, are you worried that actually this is now going to become some sort of super defensive sector and things are going to be just fine? Or what are the other worries that you have around autos? So I would say the big thing, I guess, that keeps me up at night would be like the competitive environment. I think if you kind of zoom out for a bit, 
and look at where the sector is. Things have literally never been better. Profitability is at all-time highs. Free cash flow is strong. Balance sheets are extremely strong in the auto sector as well, especially in investment grade. You know, but whether those good times keep rolling on forever is, is definitely up for debate. And particularly, you know, that's that definitely comes to the surface when you talk about the transition to electric vehicles and the acceleration of those trends. You know, clearly most people are very aware of of Tesla and th their ability not only to offer very competitive pricing, but the fact that they also have you know, much superior margins than most of the kind of what we call legacy OEMs is not something that the sector should take lightly. And I think you can see already the impact that they're starting to have. You know, they're growing extremely rapidly in Europe this year as they've had their, their Gigafactory has ramped up production in Germany. But unfortunately, Tesla is not the only competitor that's lurking out there, especially in the BEV space. We have a huge range of Chinese BEV competitors that have scaled incredibly quickly. They're very well capitalized. And most importantly, they have an extremely compelling technology offering or a very compelling vehicle uh, to sell. And that's not really something that people have historically associated with uh, Chinese cars. They've often been cheap, but they often haven't been of very high quality. But that's certainly changing. If you take a look at the Chinese market over the last sort of six to 12 months, what was a very solid market for Western OEMs for the last sort of 20 years or so, pretty much turned on a dime and is very quickly turned in essentially a bloodbath for Western, Europe, Western OEMs. We've seen price cut after price cut after price cut by these local players you know, really aggressively fighting for market share. And essentially it's turned into a race to the bottom. And that's kind of a worst case scenario for these legacy OEMs. So I guess what keeps me up at night is the potential for a similar dynamic to start showing up in Europe for these legacy OEMs to have to fight to remain competitive. And I think it's not something that's going to happen overnight, but when you look out for the next sort of five to 10 years, you know, this, these legacy OEMs are going to have to think about how they're going to navigate that dynamic. Overall, I would say we think the best course of action would be for them to just focus on building brand value, protecting residual values, rather than getting dragged into a price war where at all possible. Obviously, to some extent, they're probably going to have to compete on price. And so far, most OEMs, I think, are towing the line and saying, you know, we're going to remain disciplined on pricing. We're not going back to these policies of the 2010s where there's heavy discounting incentives and things like that. And so I think what's really important to keep an eye on is who's going to actually follow through on that. I think it's a little bit of a case of chalk is, talk is cheap when, you know, everything is going well, when we actually start to see some of these Chinese players start to come in and start to take market share. Who's going to be uh, the first to fold? And I kind of highlighted VW earlier saying that they're going to um, grow by 15%. I mean, on the one hand, they're saying, yes, we're going to remain disciplined. And at the, in the same time, they're saying, we're going to grow 15%. We're going to take market share. They're setting market share targets for themselves in North America and things like that. And I think that's a very dangerous game to be playing. And, you know, as a bond investor in particular, I think the last thing you want to be seeing is, you know, a return to these you know, volume orientated market share focused targets because it's proven to be t you know through almost every cycle to result in extremely weak profitability for the overall sector. So it's going to be an, an extremely interesting to see how this whole dynamic plays out, I think. Yeah, it will be really interesting to see if this script can kind of continue at, at the 
the Goldilocks operating environments when you have some companies that are very aggressively trying to pursue the market share side of things. Does the electric vehicle transition play into kind of how you're thinking about competition and market share at all? Yeah, so I mean, I think the whole pandemic essentially rapidly accelerated the shift to to the EVs, partly due to you know the incentives that were introduced by governments as a as a response. You know, back in like the two thousand eight, find you know incentives by governments as a fiscal response is not new. But what is new is that the incentives for governments now is to do it in a in such a way that you know they're meeting their climate goals as well. So. All of a sudden, instead of all vehicles receiving it, it's you know they they put forward a lot of subsidies of BVs and things like that. And so I think that overall, most people have been surprised about how quickly that 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 has taken off. I mean, in some markets now, we're seeing in Europe, we're seeing you know forty fifty percent of vehicles are now electrified. So whether that be BVs or hybrids, but you know there's definitely structural changes in the way. You know, people seem much more willing to to go out and buy a DV than they did five years ago. And I think I think overall in terms of like the product, you know, the, the OEMs have come a long way as well. There was kind of a there was a, a lot of uncertainty, I think, maybe you know, going into the pandemic as to how competitive or how good these products were gonna be. But I think for the most part, the response from consumers has actually been, you know, a positive surprise. I think at the same time as electrification is happening, there's also huge developments coming on the technology side that's kind of being integrated with the BEV offering. So you're seeing not only people are getting you know more sustainable vehicles and things like that, but they're getting much better infotainment, they're getting autonomous driving features and things like that as well. So the the overall experience and value that you know essentially you're, a car is turning into a you know, a mobile phone on wheels, you know so to speak. So I think the value proposition for people maybe has changed a little bit as they kind of go go through that transition as well. I don't know how I feel about the car being a mobile phone on, <laughs> on wheels. I, I already but, kind of hate how connected I am to my phone. Yeah, well, it's interesting in China, actually, uh, you can't sell a vehicle now without it having a karaoke microphone in it. So yeah, so you actually missed the boat on that and they didn't have a karaoke microphone in theirs. And their sales, their sales literally plummeted. They they actually cited it as the key reason for one of the key reasons for why they weren't selling as many BVs. But they they rectified the issue and sales have picked up again. <laughs> so wait, so this is like an external, like an actual microphone that one can hold? Yeah, yeah. So it's like turning into basically like, you know, you have so many displays now going into cars and things like that, and you have these infotainment things and. People are literally, you know, sitting in cars and and like chilling out. As uh, yeah, that's what I mean. Like the value proposition is oh kind of changing from just a mode of transport to mm-hmm. you know it's more in- integrated into your life. I guess. So yeah. I mean this this is a hundred percent true. What I was doing in like high school with my friends when we had no money, but someone had a car and we could just drive somewhere and hang out. But <laughs> exactly. As an adult, I don't know about that. My <laughs> my eight year old would love to have a karaoke <laughs> microphone in our car. Yeah, you might have to unplug it after a, after a few songs. I think if that was. The case. Oh my gosh! Actually, one time when I was still at my old firm. I was presenting on a morning call and my daughter turned on our karaoke microphone and it Bluetoothed into my phone. And so 
my meeting was treated to a wonderful rendition of a song from Frozen, which was fun. Perfect. <laughs> Perfect. All right, let's move on to trade recommendations. Your top pick, maybe a pan, best carry trade. We've heard a little bit about VW. I have a feeling that you might talk about VW. What trades are you recommending? Yeah, so I'll start off in high yield first. I would say our top pick is auto parts supplier called Freesia, also known as Forvia. Basically, the story here is they levered up to acquire a, another large auto supplier called Heller in 2021 at a pretty inopportune time, really, from a financing perspective, because they really struggled to get the refinancing of the all the acquisition debt over the line. And bonds were essentially crushed through 2022. It was a very you know highly levered, high beta, cyclical company. But you know, as you mentioned, you know, investors looking for rising stars. We think that this is a potential rising star, you know, and could potentially get investment grade ratings in say 18 to 24 months. But what really sets, you know, they're benefiting from this kind of rebound in production volumes that have hindered auto suppliers for the last you know, three years or so. And so they're going to see, you know, just the mechanical benefits of, of, of those production improvements. But I think what really sets these guys apart is that, you know, they've, they launched a 1 billion divestment program that they're using to basically accelerate the deleveraging. And so by the end of this year, you know, they're going to have net leverage probably back below two times. And, you know, the bonds trade at the wides of double B space within the auto sector. And so I think, you know, when you marry up the, where the yields are and our view that we think that this is an investment grade company, I think you get really good compensation for, for owning that name. From a PAN perspective, we have underperformed recommendations on BMW and Mercedes-Benz, which ultimately I think is an extension of our view that valuations are just very unattractive at these levels. You know, both of these companies have benefited tremendously over the last couple of years and fundamentally, you know, are outstanding companies but they trade extremely tight. And when you kind of broaden out the horizon and look outside of autos, they now trade closer to, you know, a very diversified, higher rated industrial name like Siemens than they, you know, you know, which historically has not been the case. And so, you know, while the, you know, as I mentioned, the fundamentals are very solid and well positioned long-term, I just don't think valuation really makes a lot of sense at these levels. And I guess for a carry trade, you're right, you front ran me and it is Volkswagen. But I think, you know, Volkswagen have had no shortage of issues with being actually quite hard on VW, I guess, from a fundamental perspective. I think they've made a lot of errors in terms of like the rollout of their of their portfolios, the amount of investments that they're doing. You know, compared to peers, they just haven't really been able to take advantage of this this environment over the last few years as as their peers which is a bit of a shame. But in saying that, the, the VW bonds trade extremely wide now in IG autos. And, you know, and the other, the other thing I'd highlight, I mean, governance has always been an issue for VW and they were flagged by MSCI for, gov uh, for ESG concerns. And, you know, we've heard from quite a few different investors that, you know, as part of their mandates, they're not able to own VW bond, uh, they're not able, able to own any bonds flagged by MSCI. And so what you essentially had, I think, is a bunch of forced selling in, in, in VW bonds. And that's kind of what's pushed, pushed the VW curve out so, so wide. Overall, I would say, I think it's a little bit of a value trap in the sense that I think 
almost every client we speak to looks at these VW bonds and thinks they're cheap and thinks they're going to, you know, tie them back closer to Mercedes and BMW, which is kind of closer to where they used to trade pre, you know, back in 2020 kind of time. We don't really buy that thesis and I don't really expect the VW curve to tighten significantly. But I think if you look at it purely from a carry perspective and where the bonds trade relative to the rating, then I think taking some exposure here might not be, you know, the worst thing to layer into a portfolio. And then I have I have a high yield one as well, maybe that I could just quickly highlight. Yeah, um, please. Which is Adler Pausa. So that's a single B rated. So this is, you know, a bit further down the order, down the, the credit spectrum. But they basically have just come out the other side of a big uh, refinancing effort. So they got a 120 million equity injection from shareholders as part of that to help recapitalize the business. And we think that, you know, the equity injection and, you know, the, our view that production volumes are going to start to, you know, slowly drift higher. The capital structure looks very sustainable. You get a nine and a half percent coupon on these bonds and their, their price to yield close to 13%. And so, you know, I think it's a really good opportunity where you can clip a really nice coupon while also having a bit of room for some, some cash price upside if they can execute on the improvements in credit quality. So. Sounds like some great trades. I have a question on VW and the MFCI thing. Yeah. So presumably if they're flagged, then VW's management team wants to work towards not being flagged, right? Or is do they just not care? Yeah, I mean, I think most people will be pretty aware that VW doesn't have the best track record when it comes to governance. I mean, you mm-hmm. don't need to look much further than 2000, you know, back in the mid 2010s when they had the diesel crisis. I remember vividly, you know, a few years ago, an analyst asking on a call, what are you guys doing about governance? And the response was, don't worry, we're sorting the governance out. You know, you just leave that to us. And it's a very unconvincing answer. The, the issue from like a from like a VW governance standpoint or like ESG more broadly is that basically you have a lot of conflicting kind of narratives within the ownership structure. So you have the Porsche Peach family who, you know, own a majority voting stake in the company. So they have their their interests. You have ownership from the lower state of Saxony, who, you know, it's government very focused on, you know, from the from the from that. And also you have a lot of works councils. You know, in Germany there's a lot of the borders represented by works councils. And so you basically just have, you know, three three pieces of the puzzle that really don't gel well together. And when you combine that with the fact that, you know, that the sector's going through you know, the biggest transition that that's happened in, in decades, trying to get all these, you know, all the incentives lined up with, you know, do we cut jobs to improve, you know, can we cut jobs? Not really, because that's not what half the people want. You know, can we improve profitability? No, we can't without, without cutting jobs. So there's just a bunch of these different things that I don't see any reason, well, I don't really see how they're going to solve the, the governance issues based on the way that the, the structure is set up at the moment. So, yeah, and I think that kind of feeds into the whole value trap thesis is that you don't really have a natural buyer because I think like the marginal buyers kind of not incentivized to buy this because a lot of them can't. So I don't really see a reason why, you know, who's going to come and pick up VW, who's the, the biggest issuer in, in the auto sector and, you know, a huge issuer even within in the context of you know the whole index so 
there's a lot of paper out there, a lot of VW paper out there, and it really doesn't help when you have so much issuance. And you know, and now you're starting to have various investors who who aren't actually eligible to own it. So, just from a technical perspective, it, it, it doesn't help. That uh, sounds like a very sticky situation for sure. So let's wrap it up with some words of wisdom for management teams. If you could give some advice to those management teams in the auto sector trying to navigate this current economic and market environment, what would you tell them? I think for autos, I think it kind of comes back to the the point I was making about competition. And I think what needs to be done by management teams is to clearly define what approach they're going to take when the kind of inevitable wave of competition arrives. You know, for the most part, as I mentioned, I think the best approach for most of the legacy OEMs is going to be kind of to lean into that brand value and try and improve the, the stickiness with consumers to try and, you know, drive them back to your product, you know, when they sell their current, you know, Mercedes, they buy another Mercedes, as opposed to, you know, getting sucked into trying to be a cost leader. You know, when people go and buy a car, they're not only thinking about price, they're thinking about, you know, how well is my car going to hold its value? Will this company be around in 10 years to service it? You know, when I need, to, when, it, when it's secondhand and things like that. So I think there's a lot of different avenues and, and then also adding in kind of this technology or you know, being able to offer, uh, you know, good technology, services, subscriptions, over the air updates and things like that, you know, and before this whole transition, I think it was very much a case of the OEM sold the car. And then once they sold the car, they were kind of, that was it. Now they, there's so many avenues that they can kind of lean into to try and drive other areas. And so I think, you know, if I was to offer the advice, I would say have a well-defined plan and have that well communicated to investors, because I think, you know, that's probably one of the most common questions we get is, you know, how is X, XYZ company going to, you know, how are things going to go when, you know, inevitably pricing starts to weaken or competition starts to heat up. So I would say that's the big one. That is great advice. Jim, next time I'm in London, we'll find a karaoke car and we'll take a little little journey. We'll do some karaoke. No need for the bar anymore. Just the car. No need for the bar, just the car. (laughs) Do you have a a favorite karaoke song? Oh, karaoke song. I love a bit of a bit of John Mayer, I would say, if I was Mm. Oh, nice. I am a terrible singer, but I'm going to go with some Bon Jovi. Maybe a little living on a prayer. Oh, and nice. that may be it's a what big some song. of the, the OEMs are doing. It is a really big song. I feel like <laughs> if you have if you have a terrible voice, you just have to go for it, right? Got it, got it, got it. <laughs> All right, Jim. Thank you so much for joining me. This has been an absolute pleasure. I always learn so much talking to the sector analysts. If anyone have has questions for me or Jim. You can always reach out to us using the Ask an Analyst function on the creditsites.com website. And Jim, have a great rest of your day. Thank you very much, Winnie. Appreciate it. Credit Sites Disclaimer. All price references correspond to the date of this recording. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, or reproduced in whole or in part. Neither Credit Sites nor its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of any information contained in this podcast. Credit Sites is not providing investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, is not providing research or making any recommendations, nor is Credit Sites offering or soliciting any transaction with respect to the purchase or sale of any security. 
receipt by this listener of this podcast is not the giving of advice by credit sites or its affiliates.